You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with both sides of the family office coin, a G3 or third generation family member and a professional from a significant family office. The former would actually not describe the situation as a traditional family office, as he and his siblings each are active participants in the ventures they invest in, while the latter has been with his employer for many years, working with the investment team and family to guide the investment plan. Both have deep and varied experience and expertise in a number of areas, which is key to propelling wealth and thoughtful impact to successive generations. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Thursday, April 30th, and this is uh, James Perron with CASA in today's Alternative Thinking Podcast with Paul Demery III with Cigar Holdings and Enzo Gabrielli with Horizon Capital Holdings. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. Maybe we'll start with you, Paul. Thank you, James. Uh, Paul Demery, I'm the chairman and CEO of Cigar Holdings. Uh, Cigar Holdings is a multi-strategy investment management firm, uh, investing in credit, private equity, and venture, as well as pharmaceutical royalties. Uh, I've been the CEO for the last kind of three years, and we've built the business from being a only power corporation capital and a single office in Greenwich and managing just over $3 billion of outside capital with over a hundred different LPs. Wow, that's quite the growth. Um, did you, uh, what's the makeup of your LPs? Is it other family offices like yourself or their corporations or uh, do you have any type of retail products? What kind of uh, mix do you have there? Uh, my direct family actually doesn't have much of a family office philosophy, interestingly really believe in kind of, you know, as a core value, the value of kind of multi-generational entrepreneurship. And so the way our family kind of builds, you know, businesses and wealth is that, you know, if you are a member of the next generation and you want to build a business, uh, you know, the family will fund you through dividends from our kind of, you know, holdings. Um, but mm. there's no kind of pool of capital that is invested in a family office style way. It's, it's really every brother has to build his own company. And we're four boys. My three brothers are CEOs. Uh, two of them were Forbes 30 under 30s for their kind of individual companies. Wow. Uh, one of them's built a unicorn in Silicon Valley. And, you know, we, we have a pretty kind of entrepreneurial DNA. And so, you know, in terms of our LP makeup, uh, I'd say it is 70% institutional, uh, 20% mm-hmm. financial institutions, and then 10% family offices. Wow, that's cool. And then the you said multi-strategy and it uh, seems like multi-asset too. So what? Uh, so uh, the pharmaceutical royalties, actually, we had uh, Ali on another podcast uh, earlier, so people can, can tune into that. Uh, what are you doing though? And it's a venture capital and his big brother PE and, uh, and in the credit space, is that private lending or is it more the public bond trading? Uh, so first in the venture space, we invest across two different buckets. We invest, uh, in one bucket where we make investments in existing companies and that's our portage fund. And in another bucket, we actually found companies from scratch and that's our diagram fund. 
uh, and diagram built companies that are getting, you know, relatively well known in Canada, like Dialogue, which is now Canada's largest telemedicine platform, uh, right. with about 3 million people on the platform. Um, and, and that's a company that we started from scratch three years ago. Um, and so those are the two different strategies we do in venture. In, uh, in debt, uh, our Cigar Credit Partners Fund uh, focuses mostly on private debt. Uh, that said, mm-hmm. we're allowed to do, we have an opportunistic sleeve where when there's major dislocations in the market, like what we're seeing right now, we are allowed to kind of play in the secondary market as well. And so, you know, where we, we've seen kind of names that we know well trade off significantly in the last few weeks, uh, now many of those names have recovered, but you know, end of March, there was a lot of opportunities in the debt markets, and those are opportunities that we've been looking to seize through through that vehicle. But a majority mm-hmm. of the vehicle is kind of direct origination, private loans to middle market companies. Wow, that's great! Wow, you're, your full family definitely is not sitting on its laurels. You're uh, you've got a lot going on with uh, with you and your brothers. Uh, and then Enzo, you're with another uh, iconic uh, Montreal-based family. Let's let's hear about your background and uh, your employer. Yeah, thank you, James and uh, Paul as well. It's very good to be on this uh, podcast together. Uh, so by way of introduction, I am with the family office of the uh, Right Honorable Paul Martin and his uh, three sons who are the owners of the business. And I've been with the family for uh, approximately 16 years. Uh, so perhaps useful to provide just a a brief historical background, uh, just mm-hmm. to put into context uh, why it is we do what we do today. So, uh, uh, Mr. Martin had the uh, opportunity to purchase a company called Canada uh, Steamship Lines uh, about 40 years ago, and uh, incidentally, uh, it was from the Power Corporation. So it was uh, Paul's uh, family who were good enough to allow for uh, for this. Wow. And Mr. Martin, uh, Mr. Martin uh, was able to take uh, advantage of this opportunity. So uh, it's just interesting how things come come for circle here today. But uh, yeah. at the time, the Canada Steamship Lines was really a transport uh, company, and its main thrust was shipping. But it only had four to five vessels, and it operated uh, mostly in, in Canada, the Great Lakes, a little bit in the U.S. And hmm. uh, fast forwarding to today, it is a global company. Uh, we have over 60 vessels, uh, worldwide operations. And over the years, uh, the group of companies expanded uh, beyond shipping. And in 2004 uh, is where we created Horizon Capital Holdings. And the purpose of that was twofold, essentially. It was to firstly formalize a, a family office. And secondly, it was to provide a diversification investment vehicle to the marine logistics. And the way that we go about that is either through direct investments in companies, so equity positions. Secondly, through real estate, mostly in North America. And thirdly, it's portfolio investment in the markets. So uh, with respect to our direct investments, uh, it is growth capital, Mm -hmm. so we look for uh, long-term value creation, you know we're not necessarily managing uh, towards an exit. It's uh, it's uh, mostly buy and hold strategies, uh, yeah, for the most part. And right. and shipping went through like an incredible period between 2004 and call it 2007, 2008. You know, did you guys benefit from that kind of 
boom in the shipping industry? And did that kind of create the formation of a lot of the assets that are today in the family office? Yeah, good question. So yes and no. Uh, CSL's model, so, and you're absolutely correct, Paul, in, in you know, 2004 to the, you know, the, up until the 2008 period, uh, shipping was booming. I mean, the sort of the joke was any, anyone with ship was, was making money. Uh, CSL's model, though, is different. Um, so CSL, much like our investment philosophy, does have a longer term view and uh, in working with its customers and so and, and working with them in terms of uh, determining a, uh, a set profitability rate. So what it is, is when when the shipping world is really doing well, maybe CSL is a little bit below that, uh, but still maintaining good margins. However, when the when it's suffering and things are going you know, not as great, well, CSL typically doesn't suffer as much because we're, we we try to stay within that band and working with our customers and and, and they understand the ups and downs together, uh, and it works. It works because again, you know, it's it, it is a long term view. Um, so so maybe you know we're we're not as high in the boo- booms, but we're we're not as low in the in the busts either. That's great. Sounds like a nice natural hedge there. Um, so what? How about? Um... With your, you say your, your direct investments are mostly growth capital, not necessarily uh, looking to exit. Uh, obviously, CSL has been a forty-year hold so far, probably for a lot longer. So, what would cause you to to exit an investment, especially the directs? I mean, the portfolio stuff, uh, I guess, would be a little bit more market-driven. But uh, and maybe in the in the real estate, is that is that another buy and hold type of uh, portfolio for you? Uh, so, two different concepts. The real estate, again, typically those are you know. Uh, longer longer term investments we have income producing in canada that that do well mm-hmm. uh, our real estate in the us is uh, land banking for the most part and that's those are typically more oh, yeah. flip, flip type investments uh, they take time uh, land investments you know you're trying to purchase land in the path of growth so it does take time so they're not quick quick uh, turnarounds but th- i mean i guess the ultimate goal is to is to uh, sell those sometimes you know we are in discussions and uh, with respect to further developing some properties uh in areas that are doing well you know we have properties in, in texas and arizona and especially you know texas uh was texas also never really took suffered as much as some other states uh and uh, and there's been a lot of a lot of positive aspects to, to the texas market so maybe looking to develop uh, mm. some of the that we own there but on the on the direct investment side i mean it depends we go into the investment with a long-term view uh and essentially it, you know we say some of these investments they could be generational holds right so who knows maybe we could be creating uh, uh the next uh, csl for example um mm-hmm. but sometimes things do change uh, you know and for a variety of reasons it could be some of the the partners we're with uh, you know, and if, if they want to monetize and, you know, we could at times be the, the forum to help them liquidate. Uh, but sometimes, you know, we'll just, we'll just go along with the, with the entire shareholding group as if we don't have uh, the control. Um, other times it could just be mm-hmm. that, you know, that there's some just structural changes in the market where we believe, well, okay, this is, uh, it's not really going to be as amenable for as a long-term hold as we uh, potentially thought. 
and uh, sometimes you know we've had instances where we've sold the companies back to management uh, and allowed them to keep growing the company so uh, you know the reason for not holding could be uh, various uh, I, I think and, and, we're, and the other thing is we're not necessarily opposed to selling uh, on a sh- shorter term period right uh, but I think it's just that the mindset going into the investment is not necessarily uh, that. The biggest thing is we don't want to manage towards an exit. I think that's the the, the most critical fundamental point because if you're managing towards an exit, mm-hmm. and then you know, and you, and you have a, a time frame in mind, and and just the market is not ready during that time frame, well, that could be uh, you know that that could be dangerous versus. If you're managing the underlying fundamentals well uh, and it's just not the right time to sell, well, it doesn't matter, right? You still have a very strong company that's that's generating cash flow and, and we're, we, we're very pleased with that as well. Yeah, and I guess you also don't have to worry about if you're kind of counting on that cash to come in to cover something else that you started, uh, that could get that could get problematic because you have, then you have to wait to get that liquidity event. Um how about Paul? How about, how about for your uh, for your investments? Is it uh, more uh, not necessarily going to be selling because you, you said you have existing uh, private equity and venture type of deals with with protege, and then you build your own with diagrams such as Dialogue. Um, what uh, what kind of so I'd say outside of the mar- more market led portfolios like the credit side, um, what, what's your holding period typically? Well, each one of our vehicles have set fund lives, right? And so, you know, Portage is a traditional kind of 10-year fund structure with kind mm-hmm. of some extensions. Obviously, we could, you know, have discussions with our LPs around keeping some of those assets. But, you know, it they are very kind of traditional fund structures. Same thing, you know, our, mm-hmm. our cigar private equity funds in Europe, you know, they're very traditional private equity fund structures with, you know, five-year investment periods, five-year holds, you know, ability to hold things, you know, ultimately for 10 years. I'd say what's a little bit different than a lot of our structures is we're able to take kind of like minority investments, structured investments, things like that, which, you know, sometimes help us actually transition investments from one fund to another because there's always an outside kind of investor that plays plays, mm. plays a role. But but we we are very very kind of engaged investors and so if um you know if you were to speak to any of our portage ceos uh people like mike catch and a world simple or sharif habib at dialogue or daniel eberhardt coho you know they would tell you that we are you know very very active uh shareholders i i happen to sit on the board of those three companies and we basically are active by providing a lot of expertise in that as part of our mm-hmm. team we have uh chief technology officer, we have a chief sales officer, we have a chief marketing officer, we have a, we've just hired an advisor as a chief product officer, um, we have a leadership coach. Uh, and so all of these resources are deployed to help these kind of CEOs build their companies. And in the kind of early stage, and even in the middle market, it's, it's very rare that a CEO has like a full suite of capabilities that are kind of best in class. Wow. And that's fabulous. You know, one of the value adds that we bring as an organization is that we're able to bring best in class talents to problems that we see being kind of recurring problems across multiple companies. Yeah. So it sounds like Paul, you you guys are very hands-on and, and active in the businesses. And like I say, that's, that's uh, fantastic. Uh, how about on your side, Enzo with, uh, with Mr. Martin and, and his family, are they, 
similar to the the demarais or uh, are they more um uh having the the uh the professional staff uh, manage the the uh the investments there uh, we are, uh, I'd say in between, we are active. I would not say we're not inactive. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the major criteria though that we do look for uh, when we are making our investments uh, is a strong management team. Um, and so mm-hmm. what we are active on is not on the operational side. And we rely on the management team uh, f- uh, to uh, uh, fulfill those day-to-day needs. Uh, but definitely active on the strategic side. Uh, we sit on, on the boards. I sit on various boards of our, uh, our portfolio investment companies and uh, you know, ensuring that we're providing the, the proper governance, uh, protecting reputational risks, um, and, and definitely working on strategy, following up with the CEOs. So we, we keep high-level communication with the senior leadership teams, specifically the CEO, and you know, we stay in contact with them at least once a week uh, and sometimes it could be a very short discussion if there isn't that much going on sometimes it could be a longer discussion and if there are mm-hmm. uh, things that that come about then we'll spend much more time with them you know I mean uh, what we're going through now is a good uh, a good example of this where we're actually rolling up our sleeves and helping many of our more our portfolio companies in terms of uh, you know helping them through these some challenges and stabilizing companies and so on and so forth so uh, yeah, we, we and we are active, but again, try to be active on the on the value add side and not necessarily on the day to day side. Right. So, what kind of challenges are uh, folks getting? That's a perfect segue into our our current crisis. Um, and like maybe I don't know if there's any specific companies and things that they've come up against. Uh, I imagine the shipping. I don't know. It has a shipping change at all too. Well, you know, fortunately, I. I a number of our companies and, and shipping included have been deemed as essential services. So up until now, right. shipping specifically, uh, you know, we've, we've continued, uh, continued on, um, you know, none of our orders over the last uh, a couple of months have, have taken, uh, or has been no impact. Uh, certainly as we move forward and working with our customers, uh, that's going to be assessed and it's going to, you know, there's going to be some impact. It's just really trying to understand the, level of degree and similar to all our other uh, companies uh, again some others were also deemed essential services uh, they've all been impacted right every i think every entity is impacted yeah. And, yeah. Uh, it's just again right, to, to what degree and it is a case-by-case basis um i uh, i would i would venture you know and also speaking to a lot of our peer colleagues uh, when this came about uh, six seven weeks ago i think the initial reaction was just to help uh, certainly there's a lot of uncertainty, right? And that was, that's the, mm. that was the key, but it was, uh, helping, uh, stabilize other companies. Um, certainly it was helping the employees, uh, and the impact on the employees and, and helping all the employees navigate through this, keeping communication mm. uh, levels high with all the stakeholders, be it, uh, you know, customers, suppliers, uh, financial institutions. Uh, but really stabilizing the companies as well, looking at uh, you know, liquidity uh, scenarios, uh, doing a lot of scenario analysis. It's a very fluid situation, but just really trying to understand uh, mm-hmm. what the short-term, mid-term impacts uh, we're going to be. Certainly now that we're you know a couple of weeks into this, things are starting to, to 
quote unquote normalize a little bit. They're certainly uh, it's still very fluid and they're yeah still, like the new the new abnormal. Stability. Yeah, the new abnormal exactly right. Uh, and we're still trying to gain visibility. But but having said that, uh, I think the immediate impact was and the immediate challenges was really trying to work with our senior leadership teams to to stabilize the companies as best we can. That's great. And on your side, Paul, again, you got you run the gamut here. I imagine, um, like you said, mentioned with, with dialogue, must be in high demand. And then you have, uh, you know, the, the pharmaceutical royalties. I don't know if that's affected too much by this, yeah. but uh, how have those, uh, you know, your, your four four pillars in there and, and sub pillars been been affected by this? And how are you working with maybe the portfolios if they're more market traded or or the the companies if it's more uh, more private? Yeah, I, I mean. The way I've been thinking about it is in four steps, right? Step one is ensure your teams are safe. And so, you know, we moved to remote, you know, before that was even kind of mandated. And we kind of, you know, have always been well set up for kind of distributed working. You know, step two is make sure your portfolio is in good shape. And so we spent the first kind of two, three weeks of the crisis kind of, you know, re-underwriting everything in our portfolio and seeing kind of where mm-hmm. was there going to be liquidity issues and and, you know, solving those, you know, step three is seeing, Hey, you know, are there businesses that could actually maybe pivot themselves a little bit and be of use in the crisis? And so an example of that would be, mm-hmm. you know, Bauer, uh, and cascade, you know, lacrosse equipment, we kind of, right. pivot, we pivoted our manufacturing facilities and both those businesses to make uh, protective face shields. Um, it's basically the same equipment that we need and the same raw materials we need to make helmets. Uh, you just basically change the design and you can make face shields that help, you know, help health workers. And, and we've, we've received about orders for about 2 million of those. And they've proven to be very, very, very appreciated by health workers to the point where, you, you know, it's, it's, it's something to consider. Is this a business we want to do long term? Uh, hmm. you, you know, other examples of kind of business models pivoting is dialogue or telemedicine platform. We, we basically did a big push to basically roll out telemedicine to as many people as possible. In that push, we ended up partnering with Sun Life. And, you know, you know we, we've now rolled out telemedicine to about 2 million Canadians in the last four weeks. And that goes from a starting point of kind of less than 400,000. And so we've grown our platform dialogue by 5x uh, in a very short time. And that significantly extends capacity of the healthcare sector. And then, you know, something as simple as Coho, you know, our kind mm-hmm. of bank card, we basically made it really easy for our customers to be able to get the CRA kind of benefits uh, for those that, you know, are qualifying for those benefits. And so those are kind of little things we did, you know, in terms of step three of pivoting, but kind of focuses on the portfolio companies. And then step four is as across all our funds, like how do we take advantage of this? You know, our credit fund went into this crisis, you know, less than 50% deployed, you know, our second portage fund went into the crisis, less than 50% deployed. Our royalty fund went into this crisis, less than 10% deployed. So we've entered the crisis with a lot of dry powder and so have been really kind Mm. of active looking at new opportunities. Uh, To your comment on the pharmaceutical royalty fund, this is where you really see like, is the drug necessary or is the drug not necessary? I'd say the drugs that we the drugs we focus on tend to be kind of cancer related, um, and cancer related treatments tend to be necessary. You tend to not try and cut a corner in terms of cancer treatment. 
And so the performance of those kind of underlying assets are totally uncorrelated to the market. It purely has to do with, you know, specific kind of drug usage. And that's what we spend a lot of our time kind of underwriting because ultimately, if, if you're a cancer patient, you will use the treatment that is kind of most recommended by your doctor. Right. Okay. So, um, so and then number four was just invest more, put, put your powder to work. Cause I was going to ask if you, if you employed a fair bit of leverage, but it seemed like you were anti-levered going into this, which was, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess fortuitous or just, just, uh, it, it, I guess it just came about yeah. from your, your, how you're looking at the value in the markets. What's interesting is that venture and debt are two of the least levered asset classes, right? I mean, you know, mm. venture companies are often too, too early to oh, yeah. put on debt. Exactly. And, and debt is leverage. Uh, and so when you're playing in those parts of the market, I mean, I, I'd say you're actually quite well positioned for these types of crises, especially the particular crisis that we're going through right now, because, you, you know, adoption of digital is basically being accelerated by five years. And so to give you an example, well, yep. simple open four times more accounts Q1 than it did Q4. Um, and so, you know, a lot of our digital businesses, especially consumer facing businesses are having kind of, you know, very, very strong performance. So how is Wealth Triple doing? Cause I remember seeing um, a presentation years ago and it was about a billion and then went to two in about nine months and then I think to four, like where, where, where's its, uh, where's its ARM now and, and what kind of growth is it doing? Yeah, we're now above seven. Uh, oh, yeah. billion and uh, and and look, I mean, I mean, the the growth is pretty, you know, uh, you know, incredible, right? I mean, we were, you know, we have, you know, many weeks where people deposit, you know, over a hundred million dollars on our platform, and so, wow, you know, when you think about the early stage growth, we kind of achieved that in you know ten twelve weeks, uh, and so it's a really exciting kind of time for this business. I think it's, you know, one of the biggest doubts that people have had on the platform historically is, you know, is it resistant to the first crisis? And what's happened is that, you know, and, you know, past performance is not an indicator of future performance, but our portfolios have significantly outperformed the indices because we were very long duration, um, you know, driving about, you know, a few hundred basis points of kind of outperformance versus the index and Wealthsimple's communication strategy has been really effective and kind of proactive, yes. uh, keeping people engaged, people keeping the markets. And, and, and so I would say that we've served our customers in the best way possible in this crisis and that we've significantly kind of performed well, uh, and, we've kept them in the market by kind of reassuring them and, you know, telling them to stay calm and carry on. And that's particularly important in what happened here, because, you know, at that, in that week, in the end of March, you know, a lot of people could have been panic selling and there's been a tremendous recovery. And so the best thing you could have done as an advisor is to tell your customers to stay in the market. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and ultimately we're well organized on a platform like well simple to get that message out very broadly, very quickly. Echo what uh, what Paul is saying, the ability maybe to pivot, right? Uh, in some of our portfolio investment mm. companies, one of our companies is in the uh, electronic and uh, electrical and electronic uh, recycling space. So essentially, it uh, recycles 
end-of-life equipment, be it uh, IT, household appliances, uh, you know, pretty much anything with a plug. And during the during the course of the year, they made a uh, small acquisition in a refurbishment company. So these are products that are come in as end of life, but they're not necessarily, you know, with, with, with some, some work and refurbishment, they could be recycled and resold. Well, over the last six to seven weeks, there's been a huge demand for refurbished monitors, notepads, tablets. Uh, right? Of course, that's, yeah. That's yeah everyone's gone home, yeah. Exactly right. So as consumer behaviors have been uh, changed for now, uh, there's been a huge demand now for us. Is okay. Is this a structural change? Is this how it's going to? You know, is is this something representative of how we're going to be working in the future? Uh, and if that's the case, well, does this require some somewhat of a pivot for the company to allow for more uh, resources towards growth uh, towards that company? Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of the that's sort of the mindset to really understand where's the where's the consumer behavior change, where the supply uh, s- supply chain impacts, and how that's going to change, and how senior le- leadership teams have to start thinking through some of these questions and how that's going to have the impact to the business, you know, uh, mid to long term. I mean, I think these types of investments are really interesting because I mean it plays to the kind of ESG themes, you know, and mm-hmm. if you think about, you know, where we are in North America on things like ESG, SDG, I mean, we're, I, I think, a little bit behind, you know, other geographies. And my, my feeling is that these themes and, you know, I think even what's happening now, it just accelerates the desire for, for kind of having impact. And, uh, and, and what's great about this is that, you know, this directly has impact because stuff that's in electronic materials is very kind of nasty stuff right yeah and on the other side too like now that we can smell fresh air because no one's a few people are driving <laughs> maybe we want to keep it that way um so how about uh maybe for for paul and we'll go to enzo too for this too but i was wondering like if you have portfolio of companies and if it's if it's wholly owned by uh by uh, by your shop or by your entity how uh, how do you decide when to prop it up in times of, of trouble and when to say, gee, we may have to, we may have to let it go or really, really change it over. Like it's it, in a corporate setting when there's just one and, you know, they have to go to the markets and such, the market will decide for them. But how do you do that within, uh, within your portfolios? Look, I mean, it's a very kind of rational approach. We have, uh, we have investment committees, we have teams that make recommendations. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've been lucky in that we've not had to really kind of prop anything up yet. Um, and so, and so, mm. and so then it's, it, it's just a matter of what makes sense. And we always look at every new dollar of capital independently of past dollars of capital. Uh, mm. and, 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 you know, if, uh, if the return on a new dollar of capital makes sense and is exciting, uh, we will do that. Uh, if you're fighting an uphill battle, um, yeah. you know, then, then it's really a matter of kind of return for the amount of time and capital that goes into the situation. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, each one of our investment vehicles has kind of governance mechanisms, LPACs, uh, that, you know, are all kind of external investors. And so anything that's a little bit off the run right. goes through those kind of LPACs and, uh, and, and that's kind of the way we do it. How about with uh, Horizon uh, Capital Holdings there, Enzo? 
a lot of the tenants that Paul is referring to apply to us as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, if we go back to our our philosophy of you know trying to invest uh, into companies to add long term value, and you know we're looking at the underlying long term fundamentals of businesses, then you know typically we're not looking at any um, either short-term market corrections or short-term difficulties as uh, anything to, to to panic through, right? And this is not only what we're going through in these circumstances. You know, there's, mm-hmm. There have been times, you know, over the years where either, you know, because of industry reasons or certain sector reasons that some companies are, are having some, some challenges. But, you know, our question is always, well, what's the long-term uh, opportunity uh, for this company. And if we always believe in the long-term ability for this company to, to thrive, then uh, we have uh, historically and continue to be supportive of these companies and other leadership teams. Um, we have in place a lot of the mechanisms that Paul referred to, certainly you know, the boards and the right governance. And, uh, and I think that's also something to speak of. I mean, you know, the fact that you know, a lot of the boards beat on the portfolio investment companies themselves and also our own company mm-hmm. where it's made up of, you know, senior individual, senior, senior leadership, seasoned, seasoned business people who have, you know, witnessed a lot of ups and downs through the years and, uh, you know, and have good counsel in terms of guiding, guiding these companies uh, through, through some challenges. You know? But again, the question is never, uh, oh, we're, we're in such difficulty now. It's okay. What's what's the long term mm. uh, opportunity? And so, okay, how do we help? How do we help these uh, leadership teams get through this so we can meet our strategy and get to the uh, get to our end goals? Great. And uh, well, we're we're very apolitical here. Like we're, we're, so this question is more like, what do you think of the the response that governments have had, uh, in Canada, U.S., elsewhere, with with regard to this crisis and. With um, you know, on the health side, on uh, fiscal, uh, you know, putting money in people's hands, and also uh, monetary, and the levers that they've been pulling at the at the various central banks. Do you have any, any comment on that? Um, look, I think the I mean, the government stimulus uh, has, has, has helped. I mean, uh, it's it's difficult to get everything right, uh, but I think in the most mm-hmm. part, uh, what it is that they're trying to do is. And some of the the measures, be it uh, uh, through the grants or tax measures, have helped. I, if I go back to to our crisis in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, if you know, if I dare say, one difference, uh, perhaps, that I sense, and some of my our peer my peer colleagues sense, is there is a little bit more calm uh, this early on. I mean, certainly five weeks ago when this happened, we were all. Uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty and, you know, getting back to some of the measures that, that we were taking to help the companies. But now that we're, you know, six, seven weeks into it, there, there is a little a little bit more calm. Uh, and there's various factors for that. Uh, firstly, this this uh, sort of crisis is, is uh, health. Right. No moral, no moral, no moral hazard here, right? <laughs> exactly, right, which was just some of the economic practices that were happening back then. Um Secondly, I, I think you know if there's one thing that came out of the 2009 crisis is people who look back remember that okay there were there were some opportunities that 
that uh, you know some some groups uh, availed themselves of. So I think the mindset right now is also okay, looking at this and saying there's going to be some some certainly some challenges, but other opportunities as well. And thirdly, I think that the government reaction uh, and how quickly they did this uh, mm -hmm. helped calm some of the fears as well. Uh, one thing I do find interesting and different was if I, if my, you know, my recollection of, of how the uh, governments around the world reacted, there seemed to be more cohesion uh, back in 2008, 2009, um, specifically amongst the G20, who were uh, speaking a lot more and coming up with some measures uh, collectively. Uh, whereas now there's, you know, certainly countries are looking to each other in terms of, uh, you know, what one country is doing uh, as opposed to the other. But I think for the most part, countries are going uh, at this on their own. Again, hard to compare because, you know, different reasons, health reasons, and, and uh, each country is at a different different point of the crisis than, than the mm -hmm. other. But I also speak to it because, I, you know, I, I just, I, you know, I, want, I wonder how, also how much this will feed into the future talk of, you know, deglobalization and some of the more national uh, uh, decisions that will be made moving forward. Again, be it supply chain or procurement of, of certain key products and so on and so forth. So, so you know, a bit of a tangent on the government stimulus, but I, <laughs> yeah. I think it has helped. Uh, now, what's the future impact of this as well, right? I mean, that, that we're going to have to think through as well of what the, what the macro impact of this is going to be years down the line and how that's going to impact some of the uh, some of the micro decisions that we uh, we need to make, but uh, but I think for the most part it's it's helped in the short term. That's great. How about uh, how about your side, Paul? Like back in the crisis, the last crisis, I think Airbnb, Uber, many other companies came out of that. Uh, what? Uh, uh, well, firstly, what what do you think of the the government responses, and then uh, maybe where the opportunities are? Look, I think from a government response, I'm extremely proud of a lot of our kind of provincial leaders. I think a lot of the provincial leaders has, have done a really great job here. And, you know, I'm proud to be Canadian. You know, I think Canada has kind of stuck together. And, you know, I think Canada's really, mm -hmm. as a whole, you know, if you add provincial and, you know, federal and everything, doing, doing a good job. Um, you know, in terms of what comes out of this and what are the opportunities, I mean, it's exactly like what you said. I mean, you know, crisis sometimes helps young companies gain kind of focus and, you know, accelerates trends. Um, we, you know, in our business have kind of put together a team specifically to think about, you know, where do we want to deploy capital in terms of trends that are going to change as a result of this crisis? And what are business models that may be really interesting as a result of this crisis? And so, hmm. and we play that both through our Portage Fund, but also through Diagram, where we found companies from scratch. And I'd say the speed at which we found new businesses is not slowing down. We see a lot, a lot of opportunities. And so there's, a, there, there's, you know, we're we're launching a business that is, you know, a kind of credit card for teenagers. Uh, so mm. parents can kind of monitor their spending, um, but at the same time, give the teenagers kind of autonomy. Uh, That's nice, ultimately yeah. give, giving teenagers cash is probably one of the worst ways to kind of monitor spending. Um, and so by having a card, it just kind of creates, you know, 
a good amount of autonomy while also uh, helping monitor. Uh, we're, we're launching, mm -hmm. you know, a banking banking as a service platform. You know, more and more, you know, companies are looking to deliver kind of financing, other forms of engagements to their clients. And so we're kind of building a business that'll have a modern architecture to provide that in the United States. We're launching a company that'll be a banking platform for kind of small, uh, small, um, small landlords uh, to basically help them collect rent, oh, wow. help them manage mortgage, all these things. And so those are all businesses that we're in the process of launching and that we're kind of very excited about. And, you know, to the point of ESG early on, we've actually already launched a business that is an e ERP for ESG metric. So basically a way of kind of managing your ESG metrics internally. So you could then re report that to, you know, investors or markets or things like that. Um, and that's a Montreal based company called Novisto. Uh, and so, and so we've been super active, you know, very kind of interesting. We were in the process of investing in a small business bank in, uh, in, in Europe uh, that basically helps small businesses get through paperwork quickly as they look to kind of found and open their business and get their kind of like accounting platform and all that stuff off the ground early. Um, that's an investment we're huh. also excited about. Wow. Wow. There's no lack of opportunities there. Um, how about from your side, Enzo? I kind of see it in three separate uh, buckets. Uh, and the first is pro products that exist already uh, and that just have suddenly become more relevant or consumers are more aware of it. Uh, I think the second category is uh, companies that will respond to either an exposure or a vulnerability that, that we've seen through this crisis, uh, be it either uh, in healthcare uh -huh. or food, distribu food distribution or, you know, and the impacts of the globalization as, as we talked about and, you know, maybe making sure that we have certain, certain products uh, that are produced uh, here in Canada or, or here at home. So, you know, looking for some of those those opportunities there. Uh, or even, you know, the the video conferencing example that I, I spoke of earlier, right? And so, yeah. and a little bit to Paul's point as well, right? That, that also has the ESG impact, you know, less travel, less solution footprint, uh, you know, as, as people do things, uh, are able to do things remotely. So there's all these these impacts that uh, consumers are looking for and the secondary benefits of, uh, to doing these things as well, some of these changes as well. Uh, the, th the third bucket I would say is perhaps not as evident, but let's face it, there's a lot of industries that have been hard hit uh, and uh, are seemingly unattractive uh, right now to be in. But I would venture to say that if there's some companies within these industries who still have good management, you know, still have a strong balance sheet, you know, and you're thinking through it, some of their competitors are going to have a hard time. We may go, you know, by the, by the wayside, uh, you know, albeit in a distressed situation, but this could be a very, you know, good opportunity to be supportive of some of these companies and help them get through it. And they, they may come out of it uh, uh, stronger, uh, despite being in a very, you know, difficult situation today. Now, the key is trying to identify uh, these companies and helping and uh, helping them through it. But that, that those could also be very good opportunities in the long run uh, as well. So that's kind of where we're keeping our eye on. And again, on the basis of, you know, trying really to understand where some of these these uh, long-term changes are going to be. 
Wow, that's been great. Well, thank you, thank you both. I'm glad uh, we could have you both on the line and uh, taking up your time to uh, to kind of talk about what what you've been doing uh, over these many years and uh, where you what you're doing right now, where you see the uh, the crisis going, and and your portfolio companies. You guys have a plethora of opportunities and, and experience. Uh, thank you both. Thanks, Enzo. Thanks, Paul. And we'll look forward to having you both on another another podcast sometime soon. Yeah, it's thank our you, James, pleasure. And thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Your- my pleasure. Thank you, Enzo. Thank you, James.